Book of Mormon Prophecy, a podcast series by Avraham Giliotti, Ph.D. 13. Why the Most Correct Book? How accurately does the Book of Mormon agree with the Bible from a literary, prophetic, and theological standpoint? Have we examined the evidence? Welcome to podcast number 13. Why the Most Correct Book? Well, we're going to look at the Book of Mormon, which Joseph Smith called a most correct book, a literary standpoint. We're going to do some word searches. We're going to look at it rhetorically, typologically, and structurally, and see if it measures up with Hebrew usage, the manner of the Jews, whether its literary aspects are consistent with each, itself, with each other, and we're going to find passages with flying colors in each of these instances. First, we're going to start with a scripture as an example of being rhetorically correct, which we do when we do word searches in the Book of Mormon and see if they're consistent, if the same terminology is used each time to describe the same kinds of events, which rarely happens in any scriptural translation. The King James Version is notorious for using different kinds of words to describe the same kind of thing but not so the Book of Mormon. We're going to read from 1 Nephi 14, 7 about the Lord's great and marvelous work that divides the world. The time cometh, says the Lamb of God, that I will work a great and marvelous work among the children of men. We've read this before, but we're making a point here about rhetorical consistency of the use of words in the Book of Mormon. A work which shall be everlasting, either on the one hand or on the other, either to the convincing of them and to peace and life eternal, or unto the deliverance of them to the hardness of their hearts and blindness of their minds, unto their being brought down into captivity and also into destruction. So this is a final event. It's a final polarization of humanity in the world, beginning with the Lord's own people. And it's not the house of Israel per se, but it begins among God's people, covenant people today, which are, of course, as you know, the Latter-day Saints. As in the prophecies of Isaiah, and all consistent with the Book of Mormon, there is deliverance on the one hand, or peace and life eternal, or destruction on the other hand. One comes of God, the other comes of Satan. Let's see if that's consistent with the next scriptures that talk about a greater marvelous work. As we see in 1 Nephi 22, verse 8, referencing Isaiah 49, 22 and 23, which we've also read before in previous podcasts, but here we're making a point about the most correct book from a rhetorical standpoint in these instances, the Gentiles restore Israel. After us he scattered, the Lord God will proceed to do a marvelous work among the Gentiles, which shall be of great worth unto our seed. We know from this scripture alone, the Book of Mormon, how accurate it is in pointing to God's covenant people of the Gentiles, the Ephraimite lineages have come through the Gentiles, that these are God's covenant people in the end time. It again shows the rabbi was correct and that my literary devices that I discovered in the book of Isaiah were correct in showing that the book of Isaiah, in every single context, can be applied to the end time as a type and shadow, as an allegory of the end time. We shall be of great worth unto our seed, wherefore it is likened to their being nourished by the Gentiles and being carried in their arms and upon their shoulders. Well, that's by us, at least 
by the kings and queens, the spiritual kings and queens from among us, Latter-day Saints, who are the ones who restore the house of Israel, the Jews, the ten tribes, and Lehi's descendants in the end time prior to the coming of our Lord, as we've discussed previously. So that is consistent with what we read before, consistent with the great and marvelous work. Now let's look at how the sons of Messiah restored the Lamanites, or converted the Lamanites, in Alma 26.15. They were encircled about with everlasting darkness and destruction. But behold, he has brought them into his everlasting light, yea, into everlasting salvation, and they are encircled about with the matchless bounty of his love, speaking of the Lamanites, in the land of Nephi, whom they converted by the thousands, as you know. We have been instruments in his hands of doing this great and marvelous work. So they describe the conversion of the Lamanites as a great and marvelous work. So how can that be? Well, it typifies, of course, the end-time conversion of the Jews, the ten tribes, and Lamanites of today, for which the, the sons of Messiah were a type. They're the ones who showed us how to do it, basically. And we have it in the Book of Mormon. So is that going to be part of the great and marvelous work of the end time, the conversion of the House of Israel? Absolutely. By definition, in the Book of Mormon, the great and marvelous work of the Lord, quoting from chapter 29 of Isaiah, is the restoration of the House of Israel, the end time restoration, for which the restoration of the gospel and priesthood in Joseph Smith's day is defined in the scriptures simply as the beginning or the commencement or the foundation of the great and marvelous work. And we've been wrong believing all these years that that was the great Amalus work. But that's not what the scriptures say. That was a precept of men that has prevented us from realizing our role in the actual great Amalus work that is still to happen. And then we see among the Nephites the great Amalus destruction in Mormon chapter 8, verse 7. The Lamanites have hunted my people, the Nephites, down from city to city, from place to place, until even they are no more, and great has been their fall, and great and marvelous is the destruction of my people, the Nephites. Again, there you have the other aspect of the Lord's great and marvelous work of the end time, from Isaiah. The Lord's great and marvelous work from Isaiah's perspective consists of both deliverance and destruction. The deliverance of God's elect and the destruction of God's people who apostatize. And that would be us if we continue down the path we're on. So this is completely consistent with Isaiah in particular, but with scriptures in general, the Doctrine and Covenants also. Now we're going to look at it again from a typological perspective. Believers depart into the wilderness, 2 Nephi 5 through 7. And these are Book of Mormon types now we're going to get into a little deeper. It came to pass that the Lord had warned me that I, Nephi, should depart from them and flee into the wilderness, and all those who would go with me. Wherefore, it came to pass that I, Nephi, did take my family, and also Zoram and his family, and Sam, my elder brother, and his family, and Jacob and Joseph, my younger brethren, and also my sisters, and all those who would go with me. And all those who would go with me were those who believed in the warnings and revelations of God. Wherefore, they did hearken unto my words, and we did take our tents, and whatsoever things were possible for us, and did journey into the wilderness for the space of many days. All right, so what do we have here? We have a Book of Mormon type and shadow of an exodus. 
And of course, we mentioned in a previous podcast how there is an Exodus pattern. There are seven to ten Exoduses in the Book of Mormon that prefigure or foreshadow the end-time Exodus from the four directions of the world, or from Babylon, out of all the world to Zion, in the time just immediately preceding the coming of the Lord, which is a time of great destruction and disaster. But the Lord saves the elect out of it, and that is going to be done by us Ephraimites, the ones who measure up, at least, to become saviors on Mount Zion. You're getting the picture now. It's beginning to solidify in your minds, right? Now these scriptures are all saying the same thing. And the Book of Mormon is very much a part of it, very, very consistent with Isaiah in these things. And the same thing happens in Isaiah. You have the end-time servant, who is the one who precipitates the end-time exodus out of Babylon. He's the arm of the Lord that is revealed, or the Lord makes bare, who starts the whole process of the house of Israel's end-time restoration and brings about these events. So Nephi here is basically a type of the end-time servant in the Book of Mormon. And so is King Mosiah in the next scripture we're going to read about his exodus. Nephi was from the land of first inheritance where they landed, where the ship landed, and then to the land of Nephi. And now we're going to talk about King Mosiah and his people's exodus from the land of Nephi down to Zarahemla. Those who heed the, the Lord's voice flee into the wilderness. So it is only those who believe the revelations and the warnings of the scriptures and of the living prophets that the ones who actually go in the Exodus. The others stay behind. We're going to read from Omni 1, 12 through 13, and also referencing Doctrine and Covenants, section 103, verses 15 through 20, which talk about being led by one likened to Moses out of bondage, dispersion from the saints' dispersion, including the Utah residents, to Jackson County, Missouri. It says, I will speak unto you somewhat concerning Mosiah, who was made king over the land of Zarahemla. For behold, he being warned of the Lord that he should flee out of the land of Nephi, and as many as would hearken unto the voice of the Lord, there you go, should also depart out of the land with him into the wilderness. So I'm sure they were getting their own testimonies of what to do and whether to go or not. It would be a scary idea, wouldn't it, to head off into some crazy wilderness and not knowing what to expect there. But if it was a commandment of the Lord, then of course we know that the Lord would provide a way to fulfill his commandment. It came to pass that he did according as the Lord had commanded him, and they departed out of the land into the wilderness, as many as would hearken unto the voice of the Lord. There we go again, reiterating that idea. And they were led by many preachings and prophesying. Of course, if you're sitting in front of your television set and you're really not searching the scriptures to know these things, what do you think the likelihood of you going on that exodus? Really? Seriously? I don't think so. I think you'd be very comfortable staying right behind and watching your TV programs, and all the fake media telling you. And they were led by many preachings and prophesyings, and they were admonished continually by the word of God, and they were led by the power of his arm through the wilderness. Huh, here you see it. The arm has something to do with it. And in that day, and also in our day, because it turns out that from Isaiah's scriptures, we know that the arm of the Lord is actually a person through whom the Lord intervenes. The Lord himself is an arm. He's a the two arms of God, righteousness and salvation. And righteousness prepares the way before salvation in the book of Isaiah. And then we move on to another type and shadow of, in the book of Mormon that conforms with the prophecies of Isaiah. Again, showing that the book of Mormon is typologically correct 
with the Hebrew Scriptures, particularly with Isaiah. Moroni champions the cause of freedom in Alma 46, 11 through 13. It came to pass that the Moroni, who was chief commander of the armies of the Nephites, had heard of these dissensions, you know, the, the kingmen and all that. He was angry with Amalekiah, and it came to pass that he rent his coat and he took a piece thereof and wrote upon it, In memory of our God, our religion, and freedom, and our peace, our wives, and our children. Now, you know, this is not politically correct in our day, right? To say, in memory of our God, our religion, and freedom. You think we would ever get to this point in time where these things would not be popular? In fact, you know, they could incur people's wrath against you? That there is such a thing as freedom to stand up for and religion? But it looks like we're going to have to repeat a Moroni scenario, doesn't it? And he fastened it upon the end of a pole, and he fastened it on his headplate and his breastplate and his shield and girded on his armor about his loins. And took the pole which he had on the end thereof, his rent coat, and he called it the title of liberty. And he bowed himself to the earth, and he prayed mightily unto his God for the blessings of liberty to rest upon his brethren. So as we see liberty eroded in this country, and as we see the elites taking over and depriving us of liberty, even from day to day, and people are getting used to this idea of being uh, sheeples, that, you know, how hard do you think it's going to be to retain it once it's lost? It'll be another Captain Moroni situation, right? Very obviously. So even the times in which we live are telling you how correct the Book of Mormon is as a type and shadow of our day. And then we read further in what Moroni did. The Nephites enter into a covenant, Alma 46, 20 through 21. Covenant, a collective covenant like the Sinai covenant. And why do you think a covenant was actually necessary? Because everything God does occurs within the parameters of the covenants that he makes. And if you make a covenant with God to say, we will do this, this, and this, and this, and then you do the rest, and you deliver us, we are going to keep your law, and then you grant the blessings that pertaining to that law and that covenant. And that's how it turns out. It's a covenant of peace in the book of Isaiah, a covenant of life, as opposed to the covenant with death that the Ephraimite people and their leaders make in chapter 28 of Isaiah. So this is the opposite of a covenant with death. This is not siding with the enemy, with the political institution. This is siding with God in this case and not putting men before God. You remember uh, Peter's reply to the, to the Jews and to the Romans who imprisoned him. He said, we had better obey God rather than men, right? The men wanted them to obey them, but Peter said, no. There comes a time when we need to obey God more than men. Okay, it says in Alma 20, 46, 20, 21, Whosoever will maintain this title upon the land, let them come forth in the strength of the Lord. Now, the strength of the Lord is a, is a particular spiritual and physical condition that comes upon God's people when they fight for truth, when God empowers them. And when they come in with the Lord, like this, as Moroni did, you can count on it that the Lord will empower you. And, but of course, you have to go through making the covenant. You can't expect the Lord to do everything. You need to do your part in this scenario. And enter into covenant that they will maintain their rights, their religion, that the Lord God may bless them. There are blessings to every covenant and also curses, as you know. And it came to pass that when Moroni had proclaimed these words, 
Behold, the people came running together with their armor girded about their loins, rending their garments in token or as a covenant that they would not forsake the Lord their God. Or in other words, if they should transgress the commandments of God, fall into transgression, and be ashamed to take upon them the name of Christ, the Lord would rend them even as they had rent their garments. They were willing to be torn apart, so to speak, tortured to death, whatever, they were willing to die, certainly, if they did not keep the terms of the covenant that they had made, which then bound the Lord to deliver them. And the Lord is bound when we do what he says, right? Now, these covenants, of course, are in complete conformity, both those a king makes for his people and also when the people make it a covenant collectively with the Lord as in the Sinai covenant. And Moroni understood this, of course, and he realized the necessity of doing that, of covenanting collectively with the Lord. Every man to a man had to do that, who fought with him. He would not tolerate anybody who had not made the covenant to uh, fight in his army because he would compromise the entire army. And that happened, of course, when the Israelites came out of Egypt and they were fighting the Amalekites if there was one man in the army of Israel who had broken God's law, the whole army suffered reverses in battle. And so when they got rid of the guy, this was in, I think, the book of Numbers? You'll see it there. When they got rid of him and stoned him in his house, because he was, you know, he was the head of the house, and then they were again victorious in battle against these Amalekites. All right, now we're going to see if the Book of Mormon is structurally correct or consistent with the Scriptures. Now, I was fortunate to and privileged to work on the Hebrew translation of the Book of Mormon years ago and discovered many Hebraisms or Hebrew literary structures and phenomena. The Book of Mormon is full of them. It was really a Hebrew book, a Jewish book. I also found many chiasms. If you know what chiasms are, if you know what parallel lines are, synonymous parallels, usually. And it, these are extended parallelisms. So if you have, uh, well, I'll read one to you. Uh, Jesus gives two beautiful, long chiasms, or chiastic structures, in uh, 3 Nephi 20 and 3 Nephi 21. Each one has 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 components, a centerpiece like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, H being the center point in each of these covenants, in each of these chiasms, they're very similar to each other, like one is a double witness or a second witness of the other one. And, yeah, I'll just read one of them to you at least if you have time. Um, a, this is 3 Nephi 20, verse 10b. Jesus fulfills his Father's commandment concerning the house of Israel. And then over in, verses, in verse 46, Jesus reiterates the Father's commandment to him about his people. And in B, the prophecy of Isaiah will be fulfilled in verse 11. And in B, in verse, verses 32 through 45, the prophecies of Isaiah will be fulfilled. C, the Father's covenant with the house of Israel is fulfilled by their gathering from throughout the earth, their knowing the Lord their God, and their receiving a land of inheritance, verses 12 through 14. And C, in the second half, the Lord's covenant with his people is fulfilled by their gathering together, their receiving a land of inheritance, and believing in Jesus Christ. That is verses 29 through 31. Are you beginning to get the idea what a chiasm is? I mean, this, and this particularly beautiful chiasm, which is, you wouldn't know it was there, it's just in Jesus' speech, in Jesus' discourse to the Nephites, gathered at Bountiful, 
in 3 Nephi chapter 20. Number D, the Gentiles do not repent after receiving the Lord's blessing. And the blessing, of course, is the fullness of the gospel. That's in verse 15. And D, in the second half, the Gentiles harden their hearts after receiving the fullness of the gospel. That's in verse 28. E, the house of Israel treads down the Gentiles, in verses 16 through 20. And E, in the second half, the Gentiles scatter the house of Israel, in verse 27. F, the house of Israel is established in fulfillment of the Lord's covenant with Jacob, the new Jerusalem, the powers of heaven, and the Lord abide in their midst, verses 21 through 22. And F, in the second half, the Gentiles receive the Holy Ghost in fulfillment of the Father's covenant with Abraham after the house of Israel defaults, and they are mighty above all, verses 25 through 27. G, Moses testifies of Jesus Christ, verse 23. And G, in the second half, the prophets from Samuel testify of Jesus Christ, verse 24. And in the centerpiece, the centerpiece of this entire chiasm, it has all these components. All who will not hear the words of Christ will be cut off from among the Lord's people. Verse 23d. And of course, that's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. So that is the centerpiece. And so it's a warning to us Gentiles, Ephraimites who've come through the Gentiles, that if we will not hear the words of Christ, of course, which the servant brings forth in 3521, the next chapter, the words of Christ on the large place of Nephi, which he brings forth, they will be cut off among the Lord's people, us being the Lord's people today. And the centerpiece of the second chiasm, which follows almost exactly this first one, in fact, it's more exact than the first one, and the centerpiece says, many among the Gentiles do not believe the great and marvelous work when it is declared to them. And that's 3 Nephi 21, verse 9. And of course, we have been led to believe that the great and marvelous work is the restoration of the gospel and priesthood, which it is not. And so, of course, it's no wonder that if we believe these precepts of men, they will not properly understand the Lord's great and marvelous work when it is declared to them by the Lord's end-time servant who comes to fulfill that. Well, there you go. And it's, there are many of these chiasms spread throughout the Book of Mormon. And of course, not even Joseph Smith or any of those who divided the Book of Mormon into chapters in that day, when it was first published, knew that these even existed because they cut right across the middle of these chiasms, which they would, of course, not do if they understood that they were literary structures, Hebrew structures, that appear in the Old Testament. All right, so now we come to Book of Mormon Covenants. In Book of Mormon Covenant theology, and I probably don't have time to, to go into this in great detail, but real quick, in the Covenant of Grant, we're going to be discussing the Davidic Covenant in the next podcast, podcast number 14, called the Davidic Covenant in Action. And we're going to discuss how the covenants work, now particularly the Davidic Covenant works. But basically, I'll give you a quick summary of it. It's based on the emperor vassal covenants of the ancient Near East, which Moses and Isaiah and other Hebrew prophets used as a paradigm or as a basis for the Lord's covenant with his people, in which Jehovah is the emperor and King David or his heirs or anyone who functions under the terms of the Davidic covenant is the vassal king. Now, anciently, an emperor had many vassal kings in his empire, each one ruling over a city-state of his empire. And if they kept the law of the emperor, the emperor was duty-bound under contract, under the agreement, the covenant they had between them, to protect the vassal in case of any mortal threat. 
and anyone threatening them was called the common enemy of the emperor and the vassal. The vassal king had to answer to the emperor for the loyalties of his own people to the emperor. And so if there were any problems with the people, the vassal would be charged, so to speak. The vassal would be prosecuted. And this became the whole basis of proxy salvation, in which the vassal is a proxy for his people. He answers for their transgressions so that the emperor may be bound under the terms of his covenant with the vassal to come out and bring his hosts to bear his standing army and meet any threat that's threatening the vassal king who is loyal to the emperor. So the vassal kept the law of the emperor, and the people of the vassal kept the law of the vassal. And that covenant basically came into place during the time of Samuel, when Saul is king. Saul not proving loyal, not keeping the commandments of the Lord. And so David was replaced him, and David did keep the commandments of the Lord, and the people of David kept David's commandments. When Jesus says things like, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, the relationship between the emperor and his vassal was that of a father-son relationship. The emperor was called the father to the vassal king, and the vassal king was called his son. You see those relationships all the way through the Book of Mormon. It's marvelous how they appear there so consistently. And we'll get into that more next, the next time. But that's a rundown of the Davidic covenant. We'll discuss it next time and to show how consistent, and even with the political covenants that the Lamanite kings maintained in the Book of Mormon, they're consistent with emperor vassal covenants of the ancient Near East uh, that were political, purely political. So, in summary, today, the Book of Mormon qualifies as the most correct book. By many standards, by every which way you look at it, it qualifies as such. The time frame is from the Gospel's restoration to the final restoration of the House of Israel. Moving forward, can we discern the many literary aspects of the Book of Mormon? Well, they're all consistent with the learning of the Jews. And the more we figure out what the Old Testament is, the more we see that how consistent the Book of Mormon is as well. So the next time, why is the Davidic covenant important? in Isaiah's end-time scenario. And we'll get into that then. Recommended reading or listening is the book The Last Days, Types and Shadows from the Bible and the Book of Mormon, which will, again, reiterate many of the things we discussed today. And thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time when we learn the Davidic Covenant in action. Have Latter-day Saints observed how God's covenants operate in the Book of Mormon and Book of Isaiah? Why is the Davidic Covenant so important?